I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about myself. Uh, I was not raised Adventist. Uh, I wasn't raised Christian either. Uh, my family was, my mom was Lutheran by profession, and I was baptized as an infant. Uh, that was the extent of my religion for the next 18 years or so. And then um, I became an Adventist in 1997. Uh, 1996, my sister and I found the flyers in the mail at my mom's house and then at my dad's house for the uh, Net 96 meetings, Mark Finley in Florida. Anybody remember that? While you were watching that on your screen, I was being born again, or the start of it. I was a guy, I am a guy, so I'm slow. It took me about a year to, to realize what I needed to do with my life. Uh, but I was baptized October 25th, 1997, my sister shortly after that, she was actually baptized first. The girls are always quicker. She was baptized right after the meetings in 96. And uh, she went to Union College in 99. Uh, I went up to visit her for Thanksgiving in uh, 99 and then felt God calling me, if you want to say it that way. Speaking of calling, that person's calling. Um, while I was there, I felt God calling me. And I went back home and prayed about it, talked to my local pastor about it, and decided to go to Union College and study theology. I thought I was going to be a pastor, and uh, I guess that depends on your definition of a pastor. I am still in ministry, I believe. Uh, I wound up in literature ministries, though. I was the literature ministry director for the Nevada-Utah Conference for about three years. Then I took a call to go to Souls West, which is the evangelism school run by the Pacific Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. I'm just curious if anybody here has heard of Souls West. I believe your literature ministry director is a Souls West graduate, Karsten Mutre. His brother, Joel, was a student of mine and my wife's when we were there at Souls. Um, as was mentioned a moment ago, it was when I was at Souls that I was studying uh, Ellen White's writings regarding education and uh, how to understand the work of education better. And I discovered that you can't read about education without reading about farming. And those of you who've perhaps read the book Education uh, will remember some of those statements that she makes about the importance of agriculture and hands-on learning in that context of education. So I said to my wife, I said, I have a problem. I'm on a school campus and I don't know enough about farming and it sounds like we should really be doing this. So in 2010, I went apostate I left ministry, abandoned church work for a farm in southern Arizona. And I say it that way because I had some people think that I was really crazy. The pastor of my church, Souls is in uh, Prescott, Arizona. It's at the conference campgrounds there in Arizona Conference. And the local church pastor, uh, he was a southern guy from Arkansas, and he said to me when I told him on the phone that I was leaving in a really slow southern drawl, are you sure? And uh, actually, he drew it out even further. He said, are you sure that's what God wants you to do? And I said, yes, he does. And he was like, okay, I can get you a call as a pastor. So 2010, uh, we went to southern Arizona and worked on an Adventist-run farm just outside of Tucson. My real goal was to come back into church work and start a farm on an Adventist school campus. I was speaking at an event in Southern California, uh, not related to farming, and uh, my topics had nothing to do with farming. And uh, a board member from Fresno Adventist Academy was at that meeting. He came up to me the next morning in the hotel. We were talking about my presentation the night before and just general chit-chat, and then all of a sudden we fell on a conversation about farming in the school there at Fresno. He discovered I was on a farm, and I discovered they were looking for a farm. And then the next thought that went through my head was, Lord, please not California. <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. Uh, I grew up in a not so populated part of the world. If you've been to California, you know what I'm talking about. First time I was in California, I drove in through uh, Reno, down into Sacramento, down the 99. And I was surprised. It was like the city that never ended. It was not so bad going from Reno to Sacramento, but once you hit Sacramento and then the 99 all the way south, it's just like it never ends. I was stunned. Like you here in Montana, you leave Bozeman, and what is there between here and Billings? Like, not much, right? And a <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, the Midwest is like that, too. 
But you know, uh, I, I said, okay, Lord, I'll see how you're leading. I went and gave several presentations to the school board there. Uh, they were very convicted as I learned their story that, that reforms needed to be made in Adventist education, that we needed to take a step back towards some of the things that used to be done. And as I gave my presentation, they were convicted that I was the person. And I was convicted that the Holy Spirit was leading them, not just to hire me, but that the Holy Spirit was leading them in what they were trying to do with the school, becoming more mission-focused, becoming more hands-on based in, in regard to learning. And I said, Lord, okay. If it's where you want me to be, if it's where you're leading, I'll go there. And so in 2014, in January, went to Fresno Adventist Academy and started Harvest Fields Organic Farm. Uh, I want to get rid of my computer here, so it's not a distraction. But what I want to tell you real quick before I go into it, what's on the screen is a virtual farm tour. Uh, show you some pictures of the farm, tell you a little bit about what we're doing, and then go into the presentation. Uh, after the farm tour, uh, I want to talk about, again, five different things between today, tomorrow, and, and tomorrow evening. Uh, today I want to talk about farming in the context of our understanding of prophecy. Then the second hour this afternoon, I'm going to go to the story of Joseph, and I'm going to further expand on that idea. And what I want to do, this is not a how-to seminar. I'd be willing to take some questions at some point about, you know, how to deal with bugs or something, or if you want to talk to me afterwards, that's all very fine and everything. But I want to talk to you about why we should do this. Why should, as uh, your secretary treasurer mentioned, why should Mount Ellis Academy be doing this? Should it be doing this? Um, and why is the question. So I want to look at that today. And then tomorrow, uh, the second uh, uh, two hours of session three, session four, if you will, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about what it would actually look like. How do you integrate agriculture and education together? And then from 4.30 to 5 tomorrow, I want to close with, with, some, with some thoughts on the, the general direction of Adventist education uh, and where we're going in the context of our mission, where we're going in the context of prophecy and the time of Earth's history that we live in. So that's the five presentations. And uh, so 2014, uh, we started the farm, Harvest Fields Organic Farm. Uh, it was a little bit of a play on the scripture. The harvest is truly what? Problem is the labors are few. That's where that comes from. In addition, we wanted a farm-sounding name, of course. And uh, the subtitle to this here, uh, we are a farm with a mission. Um, we, are a, a, um, we are a farm. We grow and sell produce. But our farm is about more than just veggies. It's more than just about money. Uh, I spent 10 years in denominational employment doing evangelism and ministry. And this is a farm with a ministry mission. And on a school campus, that mission starts with our kids. That's where it starts for us. So Harvest Fields Organic Farm, uh, I'll give you a little tour here. This is our main farm building. Fresno Adventist Academy was started in 1897. And uh, they were in a different part of town originally. In the 60s, they bought a dairy slash beef farm. And this is the old dairy barn. Uh, very different looking now than it used to be. The sides used to be open. The cattle would come in from the sides here. That's our delivery truck parked right there. Uh, cattle would come in from the sides, and they would come in and feed down the middle. Uh, so the workers would go down the middle and put the feed in the troughs as the cows came in the sides. So that's our farm building. Um, we are a 13-acre farm that's 100% certified organic. If it's not organic, I don't do it. And I'd uh, love to talk to you about that more, uh, especially those of you probably have some questions about organic food and gardening, that kind of thing. But So 13 acres, four of that is in navel oranges, an acre of it is in table grapes. That acre tends to be off-site, by the way. Uh, it not tends to be, it is off-site. Uh, the rest of that acreage is uh, small fruits and vegetables. We do strawberries, you know, squash, melons, corn. We got sweet potatoes and uh, Irish potatoes planted right now. And we have 200 chickens. Actually, 180-something. Uh, there's about a, a 100 trees per acre on the citrus. Uh, some fun little facts. That's about 40,000 pounds of oranges, or 120,000 oranges that we, every year, get to pick by hand. 
Uh, you may not realize this, but every orange you eat is picked by hand. On our farm, we pack them by hand, too. On the bigger farms, it gets all mechanized and they get fancy equipment that sizes and grades things and all that. On our farm, we do it all by hand. Here's a picture, probably not the best picture, but uh, it's our tractor with a couple bins of oranges. Those bins weigh about 900 pounds a piece, depending on how full they are. These are some of the younger trees. Uh, we had some students that helped us pick oranges a little bit. I'll tell you more about that probably tomorrow, how we get the students involved. And uh, here's our little sizing machine. It's a really fancy contraption. I got two pieces of two by four with some half inch electrical conduit going across it. And this is where the smaller stuff goes. If it doesn't fit, you try the next one. And if it doesn't fit, you go to the next one. If it doesn't fit, you go to the next one. If it doesn't fit, you go to the next one. If it's smaller than that or bigger than that, it doesn't get sold. Um, there's five main sizes of oranges that are sold in the industry, and those are our five sizes right there. Uh, one of my board members um, is a farmer just north of Sacramento. He recently talked to one of his neighbors into donating a sizing machine, for which we are very grateful. We said, praise the Lord. It's a $12,000 piece of equipment that this farmer is going to donate to us, and we won't have to do that anymore. The rest of this is our wash line. It's like a little car wash. The oranges go through, they get scrubbed on the top and bottom, and then out they go on the other end. Come on this little table here, and then we pack them off the table. Uh, it's a good thing that oranges are my favorite fruit, North American. Did I say it that way? Oranges are my favorite American fruit. Can't say North American. Uh, there are other things that I like better, like mangoes if they're good, uh, but oranges are my favorite American fruit. Uh, like I said, we have about 200 chickens, and they're part of our citrus fertility program. We rotate them through the citrus. We have portable chicken coops, and they get moved around in a portable fencing system. Uh, this is one of my, uh, she actually only worked with me for a little bit. Her name's Holly. Uh, her family ran a farm locally in Fresno, and uh, she worked with us for a few months before deciding to go back and try to rekindle her uh, family farm. Her dad had died, and they almost gave up the farm, but she decided to try to keep it going. Great girl, though. Um, she's giving a tour to some of the students there at the school and talking to them about chickens. We have a little event we do with them. Uh, so they get rotated around, and they eat bugs and grass and help keep the weeds down, and then they leave little fertilizer packets for us as well. Uh, I just liked taking the picture through the tree. Uh, we did have two rabbits for a while. One of them, I think this one's name was Oreo. The science teacher moved on and uh, took a job at um, Auburn Academy, I think it was, and left her rabbit. And uh, they asked us there at the school, we don't know what to do with this rabbit, will you take him? So we took him and put him in the chicken coop. Uh, now the chickens are smart and went inside their coop at night, which we closed up. The rabbit was not so smart and liked to stay outside at night, and we had a certain four-legged creature known as a fox that made breakfast out of Oreo. Uh, here's some of our eggs. Um, our eggs are certified organic, pasture-fed, and they're corn and soy-free, too. Uh, we don't use corn products or soy products in our eggs. There's a, a growing demand for soy-free and corn-free stuff um, as more and more people realize that corn is in everything and soy is in everything else. Um, I hate to say that, but... Um, so this is one of our CSA boxes. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second, but going to one of our customers and they ordered a dozen eggs. Uh, we have an acre of table grapes I mentioned to you. These are actually off-site. Uh, an Adventist doctor uh, north of town planted these and then found out that he didn't have the time to uh, care for them as they properly should be. So we took on that project. About 15 different varieties. They harvest in succession between uh, late June and September. Uh, this is a picture there of the vineyard. Uh, they're sitting in a basket inside the wheelbarrow looking out into the, uh, the vineyard. And these are immature. I don't remember what variety that is. Uh, the rest of it I mentioned was in field crops. Uh, eight acres or so. We're shaping some beds here. Um, that's potatoes on the left. And the students were doing something as a part of a class project. I don't know exactly. I wasn't there that day. I didn't take that picture. Some eggplant on the right. You guys can see I'm not blocking you, am I? Okay. Uh, this is uh, lettuce here, romaine lettuce, next to a row of beneficial crops. Uh, that's sweet alyssum. Uh, every 12th row in our field is a beneficial crop designed to attract beneficial insects. So like ladybugs and lacewings and 
beneficial wasp. You say beneficial wasp. Did you know that all wasps are beneficial? Did you know that? If you ask them, not if you ask them, if you ask a farmer. I'll share something with you. I don't want to get too far off. Uh, I got to watch the time here. I don't want to get too off track. But um, aside from the effect that they have on your body when they express their dissatisfaction with you, anybody been stung by a wasp? Yeah, not, not friendly. Bees are way better. Um, all adult wasps are predatory. They um, don't eat bad guys, but they parasitize bad guys. So though you don't like being stung by them, they're flying around your garden stinging caterpillars and spiders. Uh, there's a really, really small wasp that's about an eighth or, yeah, about an eighth of an inch long that parasitizes aphids. How many of you have aphids in your garden? Sometimes. Uh, that aphids is a really cool story. The little bitty eighth inch wasp stings the aphid and lays an egg inside of it. The egg hatches from the inside and then eats the aphid from the inside out. And all it does is leaves a shell. And then when the aphid, um, they call it an aphid mummy, when the aphid mummy hatches, the adult wasp emerges from the mummy. Uh, it's really sci-fi. Yeah, I see the expression on your face. Yep, it's about right. Um, so all of the wasps are beneficial in their adult form. The problem is, is they need flowers to survive. The adult wasp is a nectar feeder and a pollen feeder in most cases. Uh, so they're all good guys. So every 12th row, we're trying to attract beneficial insects. Uh, that's part of our pesticide management program. We also have four greenhouses, 30 feet wide, 96 feet long. Uh, those, none of this, by the way, existed when we started the farm three years ago. Uh, they had the building there, of course. No tractor, no greenhouses, um, just fields full of weeds. A local nursery went out of business about 45 minutes north of Fresno. We drove up there. A church member told us about the, the going out of business thing. So we drove up there, took each one of those apart, numbered everything, took them all apart, packed them onto a trailer, drove them down the hill into Fresno, and then over the course of the next like six months, we put them all together one at a time. Uh, it was a lot of work. This is a picture of when they were under construction. Everything's got to be level and square and all these good things. The really fun part, I told the group earlier this morning, a really fun part of this project was um, taking them apart and realizing that each one of those arches is sitting in a socket. So when the arch comes down to the ground, it's sitting in a socket. That socket is sitting in a three-foot-long, 18-inch thick piece of concrete. And my first thought was, boy, that's a lot of work. I think I'm just going to leave them here. And I called and got the price on galvanized pipe that those greenhouse sockets are made out of and discovered that my labor was a whole lot cheaper than the pipe was. And the two sledgehammers was a whole lot cheaper. So there are 19 arches on each, excuse me, there's 17. I said that wrong this morning. There's 17 arches on each greenhouse. You can do the math, 17 on each side. What's that per tunnel? do one greenhouse at a time. 17 on each side, 34 per tunnel, times four, 128 pieces of concrete. There was this old farm boy, we borrowed his backhoe up there in the little town we got these from, and uh, he, he dug each one of them out with the backhoe. We tied a chain to it and then pulled it out of the ground and laid this big slab of concrete on the ground. And uh, we're like, now what do we do with it? <laughs> And so two sledgehammers, me and my coworker Casey, uh, we took a few swings of this piece of concrete. Have you ever hit a piece of concrete with a sledgehammer? You don't want to hit a piece of concrete with a sledgehammer, especially when the concrete causes the hammer to bounce back. It's a really pleasurable experience and it reverberates up the handle. It's just a great pleasure. We were really discouraged, I'm being honest with you. We were thinking about 128 of these. So this old farm boy, he came over, he saw our dilemma. He's a big guy, he was like six foot five, not, not really big girth-wise, but he's a big guy, six foot five, had some, had some meat on his bones. He walked over to the two of us and he said the funniest thing, he says, guys, this is where you separate the men from the boys. He took the hammer, went bang, 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 and that cracked in two like an egg. And we both stood there and looked at him like, 
Yeah. And then he handed it back and said, have a good day. <laughs> you know, it meant, it meant a lot having someone show us that it could be done. So he and I, and occasionally a few students we'd drag up from the school, uh, we'd stand one side, me on one side and him on the other, and he'd hit it and I'd hit it, and it took us about five minutes per block. I mean, just swing, 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 swing. Five minutes, you'd be, it was like June, we were just sweating like crazy. And, um, but we did it, 100, 128 of them. And then we put them all up, and then we got to pour the concrete again. And I was thinking to myself, these things are never leaving this spot again. <laughs> It was a great fun day though. I mean, we really enjoyed it. You look back on it, I was thinking about it as I put this presentation together. It's like, wow, we did all that. It was really cool. Here's a different picture of them. This is getting towards fall. We finished, there's two more on the left. Uh, we finished them first, put these up in the fall. Uh, you can kind of see there, these are rows of tomatoes. We were getting ready to put the plastic on uh, in preparation for winter. These two are heated greenhouses, the other two are not. You can kind of see the end walls are laid out there a little bit. We still had to put those on too. Uh, this is inside. This was a crop of buckwheat mostly. Uh, last summer, we didn't want the greenhouses to sit empty and the ground to dry out and everything. We wanted something to grow there and we didn't have ventilation, or not ventilation, but air conditioning in there at the time. Um, so we didn't want to grow a high dollar crop like tomatoes. We just grew some buckwheat during the winter or during the summer. Uh, this is uh, the other tunnel. This is lettuce. And then those are green beans taken sometime last fall. And then uh, this is our tomato crop that was earlier this spring. Uh, we have four rows of tomatoes in each greenhouse. Uh, this is the, some of the varieties. They're kind of like an heirloom type variety. And then some cucumbers over there. Uh, let's see. We sell all our stuff locally. Don't do any shipping. We sell to local grocery stores, restaurants and our CSA program. How many of you are familiar with CSAs? CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. It was a program created by farmers who had visited Europe uh, where local farms were selling produce directly to the consumer through a box subscription type program. So the way they did it originally, not quite the way we do it, but is that farmers would have people create memberships and they would pay for their produce in advance for the whole season. It would be sort of like the bank then. It would front the money, the farm, to purchase seed and get the crop in the ground. And then the members would get a free box of produce every week. We do ours a little bit different. You create a membership. You can order off our website and that kind of thing. We just charge people a week at a time as they go. If they want to pay in advance, we let them do that. And then we give them a little bit of a, a discount or, or bonus cash, I guess is the better way to say it. But we want to sell direct to the public. Our farm, as I said at the beginning, we're a farm with a mission. And one of our missions is to connect with people. You know, as a consumer, I want to know where my food came from. I've been vegetarian for about 18 years, vegan for about 17 years. I'm interested, like many Adventists, in health. I'm interested in knowing more about food and where it comes from and how it's affecting me. Um, but from a ministry point of view, I want to know my consumer. I want to know them. I want to build a relationship with people in the community. And uh, I have something greater to sell them than physical food. It's free, boundless, high quality. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about Jesus Christ. And we want to use food as a mechanism for sharing the bread of life with people. Here's one of our boxes, two of our boxes, tomatoes, lettuce, artichokes there, strawberries. This is from last year. We didn't grow strawberries this year. Purple carrots. You ever seen a purple carrot? They're really cool. Some of them are actually kind of spicy. It's very interesting. It's called dragon carrots. Some of our grapes, cantaloupe. So there you've had a farm tour. Uh, one other thing I'll tell you is we are a nonprofit organization. Uh, I'll tell you why we're a nonprofit. Uh, there's a number of reasons for it. The biggest reason is we're a farm with a mission. When I'm up here, I'm not down there. I'm not putting crops in the ground. And being a nonprofit organization helps us to be a farm about a mission um, and why I'm able to be up here talking with you and promoting what we could be doing within the context of Adventism, Adventist education, et cetera. Uh, we want, I want each member of the farm team to have some ministry 
that they are part of through the farm, whether that's teaching the classes at Fresno Adventist Academy or helping someone else in the community or whatever. We want everybody involved in the farm to have some sort of ministry outlet as a part of their vocation, their employment on the farm. We're still working towards that, but that's what we want to do. We can take volunteers as a nonprofit. The students at the school can volunteer. Uh, community members can volunteer. Adventists, I have non-Adventists that volunteer too. Um, and we can take donations. We can't do those things if we're a for-profit company. For-profit companies cannot take volunteers. And you can't take donations. You can take an investment, but you can't take a donation. So uh, we are a farm that's about a mission. And my mission, my personal mission, is to promote this across North America and encourage our schools to go back to what I believe God wants us and, and uh, many people think that we should be doing. What I'm going to share with you today and tomorrow is something even the world is picking up on. More and more schools are realizing that agriculture is an indispensable part of educating young people. And it improves academic performance, not decreases it. So I believe that what we're doing is something that God wants us to do. I believe it's an opportunity at the end of Earth's history to be the type of people that God wants us to be. And that includes being the type of missionaries that God wants us to be. So if I jump in today's um, more spiritual presentation, perhaps I say, I want to talk to you about farming and prophecy. Again, the real point of this hour and the next one is why should we do this right now, at this time? Why should we do this? Revelation chapter 13, verses 6 and 7 is the verse that I want to get to if you brought your Bible with you. I want to summarize the rest of the chapter for you. The first 10 verses tell us about the beast from the sea. Adventists have traditionally interpreted that as the papal power. It's a power that wants worship. It's a power that sort of exalts itself against God and God's law. Uh, the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians, the little horn of Daniel's prophecies. In chapter 13, verse 11, you have the second beast that comes up from the land. And Adventists have traditionally interpreted that as a symbol for the United States. A land that originally stood for, and I believe still does to a large degree, stand for freedom. Freedom of conscience, freedom of worship, and freedom in almost any other way. We are, uh, we are blessed and cursed by American freedom. Right now we're an extremely tolerant society where you can do almost anything and everything is okay. Jesus accepted that price when he allowed people to be free. Even as messed up as America is, being messed up is one of the benefits of being free. We know that won't always be the case according to this prophecy. The scripture says that the second beast will help the world form an image to the first beast. And it will force the world to worship that image. We get to Revelation 13, 16, and 17. Scripture says, And he, the second beast, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Well, I want to ask you, what's really happening in this passage? There's actually a number of things happening that are just sitting right below the surface. And I want to ask this in, a, in, in question form. What's the image to the beast? Does this all happen in stages? Or is it just bang, all at once? And is this before or after, to use an Adventist term, before or after probation closes? And this is all related to farming. I will get there. It'll make sense. I hope, right? You hope it makes sense. Unless I'm up here talking gibberish. Ellen White writes, this is out of the great controversy. The enforcement of Sunday keeping on the part of the Protestant churches is an enforcement of the worship of the papacy of the beast. Those who, understanding the claims of the fourth commandment, choose to observe the false instead of the true Sabbath are thereby paying homage to that power by which alone it is commanded. She goes on, but in, every, in the very act of enforcing a religious duty by secular power, the churches would themselves form an image to the beast, 
Hence, the enforcement of Sunday keeping in the United States would be an enforcement of the worship of the beast and his image. So we know this from reading the great controversy and and, and studying Adventist prophecy that there will be an effort to force worship in a particular way on a particular day. And when you combine the secular arm of government and its power of, of legal enforcement with religious worship, you form then an image to the beast who in old days was a combination of the powers of church and state. So is it in stages? Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, in the last great conflict of the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Because they refuse to break his law in obedience to earthly powers, they will be forbidden to buy or sell. Revelation 13, 16, 17. It will finally be decreed that they shall what? And you can see the stages there, right? Initially, it's you can't buy, you can't sell. If that doesn't work, then it will escalate to the point of threatening life. It happens in stages. What you're really seeing happen here is in the effort to prohibit people from buying or selling what you would call in a military way an old-fashioned siege. You think about the Romans or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Persians or any other ancient empire. They wanted to conquer a walled city. They would just surround that city and then they'd sit there. Nothing in, nothing out. Day in, day out. Nothing in, nothing out. If you read the story of the destruction of Jerusalem by Josephus, some of it's in the Great Controversy, but if you read Josephus, uh, by the way, don't read it if you're faint of heart. When the Romans surrounded the city, there was so much emotional stress on the part of the residents of Jerusalem that they started fighting among themselves. It was worse to be inside the city, Josephus says, than it would have been just to go out and surrender to the Romans. The emotional stress was so real that the inhabitants of Jerusalem took a city that had 20 years worth of food internally and an underground network of springs and water networks that would have made the city virtually unconquerable and decimated it from the inside out. Like I said, it's not for the faint of heart and I'm sparing you all the gory details. It's an old-fashioned siege. For those who want to be loyal to the seventh-day Sabbath and all the other commandments of God, Satan's effort is to surround you and cut you off from everybody else and mentally, emotionally, psychologically force you in to surrendering your faith. If you're one of those few who has the charisma to resist, then he'll just threaten your life. But Satan doesn't want martyrdom. You remember uh, Ellen White quoting Tertullian, the ancient Christian, early Christian. The blood of martyrs is seed. He said, the more you mow us down, the faster we grow. It's like a crop of weeds that's all gone to seed and flowered. You mow the crop down, seeds, boom, explode everywhere. And you get a bigger, thicker, lusher crop of of your uh, weed. The blood of martyrs is seed. Satan doesn't want martyrs. The most powerful testimony to the reality of the Christian faith is someone who is to suffer consequences and not give up their faith. Satan knows that if I, if you will do that, you will be a great persuasive sermon in favor of the reality of the truth of the gospel and he would prefer that sermon not be preached. So his effort is to starve you out, cut you off in every way. When she says every earthly support, what does every other earthly support mean? Food, water, for us technologically dependent people, electricity, gasoline, heating, cooling, your house, family, friends, jobs, everything cut off entirely. Is it before probation closes? This is from Last Day Events, page 227. The Lord has shown me clearly that the image of the beast will be formed before probation closes. For it is to be the great test for the people of God by which their eternal destiny will be decided. 
There's one other thing that Satan doesn't want. He does not want you to seal your eternal inheritance in heaven. He wants you to give it up. And at the last moment of earth's history, when many, many people, perhaps by the millions, are deciding for or against the truth, he wants to create a circumstance that makes it as difficult as possible to do that. This is all before probation closes. You can actually see this in the three angels' messages themselves. If I kind of summarize them, the first angel said to have the everlasting gospel. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. The second angel's message is that Babylon has fallen. The third angel's message is a warning to those who would worship the beast. But even in Revelation 14, it's there that it's before probation closes. I'll read it to you here from the screen. Verse 9 says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, what's the very next word? If. If. If implies that you still, I have, whoever is listening to that message being preached, we have a decision that is still yet to be made. Life's not over. Probation's not closed. Destinies are undecided in that one word, if. If any man would worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment descends up forever and ever. And Adventists kind of get caught up, I'm not criticizing, but we kind of get caught up on some of the prophetic details. Who's the beast? What's the image? What's the mark? Eternal torment. Do you die and go to heaven? Do you die and sleep? Do you burn forever? Are you annihilated? We get caught up in those details, but the real detail is the lack of uncertainty in the human world as to who's going to heaven and who's not. And this is the moment that everybody gets to decide that's alive at that time. Don't get caught up on that detail. Listen to what's coming next. One of the most interesting verses of this message. They have no, what's the next word? Rest. Rest. Day or night who worship the beast and his image, who receive the mark of his name. I have a question for you. What happens when you die? You sleep. You worship God. You sing praises to the Most High. You think about all the things you could have, should have done, wished you would have done in life. Nothing. The dead know not anything. If they're worshiping the beast, where are they? They're alive. They're alive. At the second coming, what happens to the beast? He's destroyed. At the second coming, what happens to everybody that doesn't go to heaven? So this isn't after the second coming. This is before. And I want you to listen to this very carefully. This is a small tangent from farming, but very relevant. This whole passage is written in the present tense. And there's a contrast between those who worship the beast who don't have rest and the saints who endure in keeping the commandments. And the choice is being offered right at that moment. The offer being made is to have no rest or I'm going to use a very different set of words. Come Unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelation chapter 18, the loud cry, Ellen White calls it, come out of her who? My people. Revelation 14, uh, 6 to 12, particularly the third angel's message, but the whole thing included, is God's last appeal to find grace and rest and peace in Jesus Christ. 
Be careful as Adventists that we don't get caught up on, on Sabbath and Sunday. Be careful as Adventists you don't get caught up on hellfire and damnation. And whether you sleep in, in, in the grave or you, you go straight to Peter's gates upon closing your eyes. Don't get caught up on the beast and prophecies and who America is. This is the everlasting gospel the first angel is said to have. It is the everlasting gospel, the last invitation to humanity to come to me alone in whom you'll find rest. It's all in present tense, written in the past in a future way as a prophecy. But it is worded in the present tense. And when those messages are given the last time, it will not be because their fate is sealed, but because their fate, our fate, is to be decided. Why am I sharing this with you? Because what Satan wants to do is rob our attention from the closing work of ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and believers in the Most High. He wants to distract us and make us incapable at the final moment of history when millions of people could decide in favor of truth to handicap us so that we miss it. He wants us to miss the opportunity when the contrast between light and darkness is the most stark and most evident and most obvious that it will ever be, he wants to make it impossible for us to reach those who can see the difference clearly. And how does he want to do that? He wants to do that in part by cutting us off at the knees and making it impossible for us to provide for ourselves and preserve our mission by growing our own food. Now you're wondering, maybe that's a little far-stretched. Ellen White writes, this is in, uh, let's see, Last Day Events, page 99. Again and again, the Lord has instructed our people that we are to take our families away from the cities into the country where we can raise our own provisions. Raise our own what? For in the future, the problem of what? Buying and selling will be a very serious one. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to make a statement. You can disagree with me. I would give you that right. But I believe that many of us truly don't believe that what Revelation 14 says is true because we're not acting like people that are getting ready for what will be a very serious crisis. We either believe that that's not really true or we believe that it'll happen sometime after we die. Won't happen to me. I'm gonna be out of here in a few short years. It won't happen to me. Maybe it won't happen at all. But in the context of prophecy, the problem of buying and selling is going to be an extremely serious one. And one other thing I want to add in, now that I've been a farmer for a little while, I can tell you that it's also going to be a very long one. And why do I know that? Because if you were told to grow your own food, then the time period would be long enough to justify you growing your own food. It takes 28 days to get radishes. Radishes is the shortest crop that I can think of growing to full maturity. Unless you want microgreens, you can get microgreens in about 14 days if you have it all set up right. But radishes in about 28 days. The problem with radishes is I don't really like them. <laughs> you can get lettuce in about 50 days on the early side, unless you want baby lettuce. Tomatoes are 70 days, maybe more, depending on the variety. Potatoes, 60 days minimum. That's an early variety. Many potatoes take 80 or 100 days. And if you like russet potatoes, it's 120 days. That's four months. If the Sunday law happens tomorrow and you don't have a garden, you don't have a farm, you don't have a way to provide for yourself, you'll be dead before your harvest is ready. We haven't talked about garlic, which you have to overwinter, or onions, which you have to overwinter, or we haven't talked about fruit trees or grains, which take a whole season, and fruit trees even worse, three, four, five, six, seven years on some varieties of fruit. 
That's why she's saying it'll be a very serious problem. He's not going to do a short-term thing. He's not going to make you fast for a couple days and see if he can get something out of you. You can survive for a long time without food. You look at the Nazi concentration camps, you can survive for months with very little food. You won't look good, but you can survive. But whatever he's planning on doing, he's planning on doing and stretching out long enough that Ellen White sees the wisdom in growing your own food and long enough that he really put some stress on me and you and anybody else who wants to keep their loyalty to God. In her words, a very serious problem. But I have to say something to keep the context right. The purpose of growing your own food is not to save yourself. I've heard so many Adventists, other people of other denominations, the prepper movement, so many people who view growing food as an act of personal, individual self-preservation. If you are that selfishly oriented, I would petition you that you're probably not on your way to heaven anyway. And removing yourself to the far mountain regions of the world so you're not contaminated by the world's immorality will not make you more saved. The very reason to preserve your soul and your person at that time of earth's history is so that you can reach out your hand and save somebody else who might otherwise be lost at the last moment. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Christian's motivation for agriculture, and it's often not presented this way, the Christian's motivation for gardening and canning and preserving your own food is not so you can have your little stash and go hide in the mountains while the world goes to pot. It's so you'll be alive to claim every person out of the river before they fall off the cliff of the waterfall. The only reason to preserve yourself is to reach out to other people when all the world is making their last decision to be saved with Jesus Christ or to be lost without him. Revelation 14, 6 to 12, is an echo of John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. And that's exactly what you see echoed in Revelation 14. Here, in those three angels' messages, is the everlasting gospel. Worship him that made, come to him and find rest or get torment and perish. The reason to preserve your individuality is to preserve souls for eternity. I'm not against growing your own food and living the country. I'm in favor of doing it for the right reasons, not selfish ones. Ellen White's talking about families here, individuals. What's interesting is this next quote, which I'll share with you, really made me think when I read it for the first time. Uh, That's the rest of the paragraph. I got ahead of myself a little bit. We should now begin to heed the instruction given us over and over again. Get out of the cities into rural areas where the houses are not crowded so closely together and where you'll be free from the interference of who? I want you to keep that word, enemies, in your mind. We're going to come back to it after the break. This is the quote that I was saying really made me think because it's not about individuals. It's not about families. She says, I have been troubled over many things in regard to our school, Battle Creek College, she was writing about. Anybody know what Battle Creek College is today? Andrews University. Andrews University. I have been troubled over many things in regard to our school. There should be land for cultivation Listen to what she says. The time is not far distant when the laws against Sunday labor will be more stringent. And an effort should be made, I'm going to add, at our school to secure grounds away from the cities where fruits and vegetables can be raised. In another place, I didn't put it in here, she says our schools should not be dependent upon imported produce. I'm quoting that if you want to look it up uh, later on your CD or on your phone. Our schools should not be dependent upon imported produce. And the question that I would ask in light of that quote is why? Because our institutions of learning, our publishing houses, our sanitariums, our hospitals, whatever you want to call them, they exist for the purpose of ministry. 
this school right here, Mount Ellis Academy, no different than Fresno Adventist Academy, no different than Great Lakes Adventist Academy, no different than Sunnydale Academy, no different than whatever other Adventist Academy, exists for the purpose of taking Adventist young people, equipping them as evangelists, as ministers, as servants to their community, sending them out into the world to claim the lost. If your purpose isn't mission as an institution, then why have an institution? I'm going to be very honest with you. I grew up in a public school system. The only difference I see sometimes is the price tag. And many Adventist parents are voting with their dollar because you can see it in the decline in enrollment in our schools. And not boarding schools. All of our schools. If our schools lose their distinctiveness, if our schools lose their purpose of spirituality and mission. There's no purpose anyway. And so the purpose for that institution to be able to grow its own food and to secure grounds for growing your own food is to preserve at that moment of Earth's history, that final moment of Earth's history, to preserve those critical centers of mission-based influence. When the world will need the most number of missionaries, you'll need centers that are training missionaries. And I was astounded when I read that she not only said that individuals and families should grow their own food, but that each of our institutions should be doing the same. She mentioned specifically churches, printing presses, sanitariums, and schools should all have farms and be growing their own food because of what we believe prophetically as a people. And I want to keep that focus. I want to maintain that focus. I really want to, I want to keep, uh, I almost use the word hammering that focus that we as individuals, we as institutions, we corporately as a church exist for the purpose of the moment of Revelation 14. We were called into this world to stick our hand out into the water and snatch every single person out of the river at the last moment of Earth's history. Every Adventist was born and called for that reason. And the reason why we grow our own food and have our own land is not to preserve ourselves. Again, I'm being redundant. But to be able to preserve someone else. I had to stop and think about this. I'm being honest with you. I had to stop and think about this. I was in the church, was doing evangelism. I always thought of growing food as something that people did who wanted to live as far as they could get from a Coke machine. So they could preserve themselves from the world's immorality and not be contaminated. But then it dawned on me as I read this, is that everything we do is about saving somebody else. somebody inevitably in their mind is thinking, well, what about the manna? This is from uh, Isaiah 33, 14 to 16. Who among us, God asking the question, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppression, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Say, hey, God will provide for us. Yes, he will, but when? The key is in that previous phrase. When you're hiding in the fortress of rocks, that's when God will give you bread and water. Not before that time. This is really consistent with the way Ellen White uses this verse. This is from, I think, Last Day Events. We'll find out on the next slide. The Lord has shown me repeatedly that it's contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal wants in the time of trouble. Now, she used that word provision, which she used in a previous slide. You're to make provision for yourself up until the time of trouble. Once the time of trouble comes, provision's on God. She goes on here, I saw that if the saints had food laid up by them or in the field in the time of trouble, when sword, famine, and pestilence are in the land, it would be taken from them by violent hands and strangers would reap their fields. 
Then will be the time for us to trust wholly in God and he will sustain us. I saw that our bread and water will be sure when? Not before. Your bread and water being sure before that time, that time of no buying and no selling, is dependent upon you. Is dependent upon me. Dependent upon us. When you cross that line, probation closes, we move into the time of trouble, provisions on God. And that we shall not lack or suffer hunger, she says, for God is able to spread a table for us in the wilderness. If necessary, he will send ravens to feed us as he did to feed Elijah or rain manna from heaven as he did the Israelites. I want to end and we'll take a break after this quote, this text of scripture. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so also it shall come be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, you think of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. 120 years he preached salvation through Jesus Christ. And he built an ark simultaneously. You're familiar with the story? Noah and his family, unfortunately, just the eight of them got on the boat. God closed the door by the hand of an angel. And then Ellen White writes that God preserved the ark miraculously during the flood. How many of you remember reading that? Noah, as good of a shipbuilder as he was, I actually don't know if he was a good boat builder, but... God preserved the ark during the flood, not Noah's carpentry skills. But Genesis adds a detail that I haven't heard discussed much. God, among telling him other things, told Noah, Take thou unto thee of all food that's eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. While God preserved by his angels the ark outside in the water, Noah was preserving his own life by being a good farmer beforehand. He grew the food, he stockpiled the food, and put it inside the ark. While God's angels were carrying that ark through the water, Noah was feeding himself and his family with the provisions that he had made. There has always been, always, always has been in the scripture a partnership between what God wants to do for us while we simultaneously do for ourselves what he's asked us to do. Why would Revelation 14 be any different? And from my understanding of things, it doesn't look to be actually at all any different. There's always in every act of salvation, Naaman had to go to the water and be dunked. He dunked himself. But God did the miracle as Naaman did his part. Jesus put clay on the guy's eyes, told him, go and wash. It wasn't the guy's washing that made him whole, but Jesus still told him to do it. It was a partnership between divinity and humanity. Go through all the stories. Almost every story in the Bible you will find is a partnership between what God can do for us miraculously and what we must do for ourselves. There's always that tension between us and him working together. It's never entirely on him. It's never entirely on you and I. In Revelation 14, is just the same. Now the good news is, this is the most depressing of all the presentations I'll give you. I don't like thinking about that time in Earth's history. It doesn't sound like fun. But this I know. I will do anything for rest in my soul. Jesus paid a price for me and makes any sacrifice he asks of me not even worth looking at. I will do anything and hope that God keeps that desire in my heart, that I would be willing to do anything for him because I lived in the world. I lived by the world's rules and I didn't have rest. And I don't want to go back that way. And if I can do it, if God will grace me, then I want to help somebody else get out of that mess that I was in. And that's the reason why we're having this conversation. Our mission as Christians is the reason for having this discussion. And to keep our focus on Jesus, the price he's paid for us, the price he paid for the world around us, and to do everything we can at Earth's final moment to claim every soul he purchased and let no drop of his blood be wasted. We'll take a break here for about five or ten minutes or so and I'd like to close with prayer and then we'll come back.
Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for the price you paid for us. We are bought with a price, the Bible says, the New Testament, the precious blood of Jesus. And Lord, we are called to a mission as individuals. Saved by your blood, we are to seek to save those that are lost. And I pray that you would help us to do everything on our part to save anyone around us, church members, kids in our schools, kids in our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, anything we can do to share the love of God that we've experienced with the people around us. Thank you, Lord, so much for that gift. What a beautiful gift we have. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.